The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Father, tonight, God, we're excited to be here. God, we're excited because we know that you know us greater than anyone. We're excited because we know that you know our needs greater than anyone, that you have examined the fullness of our heart, every desire, Lord, every need, every thirst that we have, you know because you've placed those there, God. And tonight, Lord, I know that you want to be the fulfillment of those needs. That tonight, God, you want to become what we're looking for. So God, tonight, I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would fill this place, that you would bring clarity to my words to be able to speak the, the gospel in an effective way, God, that, that Christians would hear and be edified, that non-Christians would hear and be saved, that those that are lukewarm would feel and be challenged and be offended even by the gospel, that you would cut us deep, Lord, tonight, that, God, we could not sit in our seat and just nod our heads, that we would be challenged emotionally, physically, Lord, that we would be challenged in every way by your word, but that we would be comforted by your love and your grace, God, at the same time. I pray that in Jesus' name tonight. Amen. Kids, dismissed? Kids? Any kids in here? If there are kids, you are dismissed. <laughs> um, so good to be with you guys tonight. Really excited for this text, as Jeff said already. Um, we, uh, I've been just going through the book of Mark. We're all the way in chapter 10 now. This text, I got to tell you, um, as a kid, you know, before uh, even really becoming a Christian, when I would read or hear about this text, it would kind of always scare me a little bit. Uh, I'd read it and kind of just didn't really know what to think about that. Um, It made me fear for my soul as a child. And um, as a Christian, uh, God has really given me some just interesting and amazing thoughts into it that, that I've gotten through um, just the Holy Spirit and through other men and things. And I'm excited to share these with you um, tonight. Has, has any guy, have you guys ever thought about, um, or have you guys ever, I should say, have you ever been shocked by or um, maybe just taken back by the severity of the call to follow Jesus? You guys ever been just blown away as you're reading scripture or um, maybe just even as things come up through your Christian life, had a moment where you realize, man, I had no idea that being a Christian would actually call me to do this. Um, I think a lot of us, unfortunately, our introduction to Christian, um, to the Christian gospel, to the gospel of Jesus Christ has been that one of, has been one of uh, an easy believism. Sort of a just uh, pray the prayer and everything's going to be roses. If I have enough faith, everything's going to be good. Um, but there's a reality that I think every Christian, I don't think, I know, every Christian is going to have to face at a certain point in your life as a Christian where the severity of Jesus' calling is going to become illuminated to you in that moment. And you're going to be faced with either a decision or a choice or something that you're up against that you did not think you were going to have to come up against. Guys, there are Christians right now in Iraq that are being chopped in half, that are being murdered brutally on camera because they are Christians. Now, that's their moment right there. (laughs) That moment where they had no idea that what it would cost to be a disciple, that what it would cost to be Jesus might even be 
their life. But I say this too. (laughs) Not only is Jesus asking for infinitely more than you ever thought that he would ask for, he's looking to give you infinitely more than you ever knew that he could. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Different people throughout the word have had these moments, right? I mean, I didn't didn't have to think very hard in the Bible just to think about different people that at some point in their Christian walk, they were faced with the reality of what it really is to be called by Jesus or what it really is to follow God. I thought of Peter right away, right? Peter had a moment where he went from one second being part of this awesome thing, this group of men that were following around Jesus. Jesus is collecting fame and, 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 and people are coming out to see him and he's doing works and miracles and saying life-changing words and everything is awesome. And then all of a sudden, guards come and arrest Jesus, marching him to be beaten, to be crucified. He becomes in that moment a criminal. And Peter slips into the background and says, I'm not with this guy anymore. He gets questioned in that moment. Aren't you with that guy? And that's his moment right there. That's his moment. Wow, I didn't realize that following Jesus was going to lead me here. I didn't realize it was going to lead me to a place that would be this severe, that would be this hard, that would be this challenging. Even though it's just a little kid or whatever asking me if I'm with Jesus, if I say that I am, then they're going to clump me in with him and I might be the next one to go to the cross. And what does Peter do? He fails. Okay, he failed (laughs) three times. Jesus said he would. That was Peter's moment right there. His moment of realization of how hard it was and what the cost of truly being a disciple of Jesus Christ was. Jesus himself had a moment like this, right? After three years of his ministry, he finds himself on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood because he is so emotionally taxed by the reality that he is about to go and take the wrath of God on the cross. That was his moment, his moment of the reality of what it could really cost to be obedient to God even unto death. Simon, who's Simon? The guy that was just standing in the crowd watching Jesus carry the cross down, whatever you want to call it, Via Della Rosa, whatever, watching him, Jesus carry the cross to be crucified, just in being part of the crowd, all of a sudden a Roman guard grabs him and says, carry the cross for him. That's his moment. <laughs> I went from being an innocent bystander to now being the one associated with this criminal who's going to the cross. He had no idea. Abraham, after close to 100 years of waiting to have a child when God had promised, they finally have a child. And in one moment, God says, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son. In that moment, he was faced with the severity of what it really meant to have to say, okay, God, I choose you. I obey you rather than what I want, rather than what I choose. You guys, if you have not had that moment yet, you will have that moment. Where Christianity no longer just becomes something that you did because your parents did it. That Christianity no longer just becomes something that, you know, I go to church on Sundays and I enjoy the fellowship. There may come a point in this country where you are faced with a really hard decision and picking Jesus will not be the easiest answer. Picking Jesus will not be the comfortable answer. Picking Jesus may cost you your life. It's cost thousands of Christians their life before. Jesus gives three examples of this. And in Luke 9, 57, it says, listen, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Here's someone raising his hand. Hey, Jesus, I want to be a follower of you. I want to be a disciple. Let me follow you. What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, hey man, that's great, but I'm homeless. So if you want to follow me, 
We're going to be sleeping who knows where. We're not going to have any money and life's going to be hard. He goes on, verse 59, to another, he said, follow me. But the person that Jesus told him to follow, he says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Seems reasonable, (laughs) right? Hold on, Jesus, I got to go deal with my dad. What does Jesus say? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That is a severe call. That is a harsh, offensive even, call of Jesus Christ to these people to be a disciple. This isn't a wishy-washy, easy believism, just follow me and everything will be roses. No, follow me, but yeah, you got to let someone else bury your dad because there's more important things to do. Let's go be homeless. This is a severe call. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to these at my home. That seems reasonable, right? Let me go say goodbye to my family. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those are severe words. I know I'm being really depressing right now, and that's okay, because this is all in the Bible. The call to discipleship is not for the light of heart. (laughs) It's not. It's not for the faint. The call of discipleship is serious. It's heavy. The story we're about to look at, the story (laughs) that had me guessing for a long time as a kid, is exactly this moment. A young man that we're going to check out, he was faced in one moment with the reality of what it really would cost him to follow Jesus, what it would really, what he would really have to give up to say, okay, I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to be a follower of you. He was faced with that in one moment and he didn't see it coming. He didn't know it was going to look like what it was going to look like. And ultimately, he chose himself over Jesus. And we can approach this text in three ways, okay? Um, and I, I want to do this right. The first way we can approach it, and I've heard people do this before, is we can take this text on in a way that sidesteps it and says, what Jesus told this rich young ruler, what Jesus told him and commanded him to do, that was just specific for him. It doesn't apply to anyone else, so therefore we can just kind of sidestep it and continue on doing whatever we're doing. We don't need to deal with this. We don't need to feel convicted about this. We don't need to change anything in our Christian life about this. I don't want to do that. Because, you, you know, Jesus is offensive, right? The gospel is offensive. It should change us. It should challenge us. It should make us squirm a little bit and say, wow, this is outside of what I thought it was going to be. The other thing I don't want to do is I don't want to put a yoke of bondage on you guys and say, every one of you has to go out and sell everything you have and go give it all to the poor or you're not going to go to heaven. People do that too. There's people that literally believe if you're not homeless like Jesus, then you're not going to heaven. That's not what Christ is doing here. It's not what Christ is saying here. I don't want to do either one of those. I don't want to sidestep this. I don't want to let us off the hook tonight and say, guys, look, this isn't challenging us in any way. This isn't taking the way that we live as Christians and maybe challenging it and and opposing it a little bit. I also don't want to put bondage on you guys. What I want to do is I want to take it head on and I want to say this is an opportunity for us to further be taken by the grace of God. This is an opportunity for us to be further taken by the grace of God. Okay, let's look at the story. Mark chapter 10 starting in verse 17. Now, there is a little chunk here that I'm skipping for now. We're going to come back to it at the end of the message, okay? So between Jeff's message on divorce and marriage last week, there's a little thing. We're going to come back to that. So picking up in verse 17, says this. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, go to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. This is interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is the kind of thing where you're just breezing through the Gospels and you get to this and you kind of stop in your tracks and you say, what does that mean? Jesus, does this mean that I have to sell everything that I have to be a Christian? Is that what that means? Well, I'm going to break this down. We're going to look at four things in this, this section of the text. We're going to look at, firstly, the man who's asking the question. Okay, we're going to look at him. We're going to look at the question itself. What is he asking here? We're going to look at the answer to the question that Jesus gives. And then lastly, we're going to look at the issue. Okay, so four things. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at the man, the question, the answer, and the issue. Let's look at the man first. Who is this man that's asking this question of Jesus? Well, we know, first of all, that he had money, right? That's the obvious thing. This was a wealthy guy. Now, wealth usually alludes to the fact that he's successful, that he's probably charismatic, that he's probably affluent, that he's probably good at whatever it is that he does, okay? He's someone that's skilled. He's someone that has um, talents and abilities that allow him to create finances, to create money. Uh, We know that he is a ruler, it says that in Luke's account, okay, there's different account in the synoptics of this, of this story. In Luke, it says he's a ruler, which means that he is in a powerful position. That means that he's over people. He has people under him. He's in a place of authority. That means he's respected. That means he's looked up to. That means he's someone that people want to run their corporation. He's the CEO, okay? He's the governor. He's the mayor. He's the guy that say, we want that guy to run our city, He's done well with his money. He's obviously good at stuff. Let's put him in a position of leadership, a position of power. Um, We know because of those two things that he'd be socially prominent, right? That people look up to this guy. People think highly of this guy. This is someone that uh, when you see walking down the street, you say, hey, there's so-and-so. Let's go meet him. Let's shake his hand. He's a good person to network with, right? We know that he was morally esteemed, as we see later on in our story. So not only is this a guy that's got money and power and, and, and he's high up in society, he's also been morally chaste. He's also a guy that's done the right things, said the right things, lived according to the law in a lot of the ways of his life. He's known the law since he was a kid, probably raised with the laws in Exodus given by Moses, knows his Bible stories, knows about the Torah, knows about the different ceremonies and the different feasts and the different holidays. And lastly, we know he's young. He's a young guy. So he's done all this stuff, and he's already a young guy. This guy's kind of got it all. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's probably got a Lamborghini. He probably does. He's, he's, he's probably, he, he's the, the guy that if you could think of anyone that, that Jesus would be impressed with, right, it'd be this guy. Because this guy, he's got it all. He's done a lot. One thing I love, by the way, side note, one thing I love about the reading the Gospels is just seeing all these different characters. 
uh, that Jesus comes into contact with. I always, whenever I teach, I always try to do just a little, like, who is this person that Jesus is talking to? And it's, I mean, just a few of it. Like, Jesus has come in contact with tax collectors, fishermen, prostitutes, Pharisees, um, rich, affluent men, rulers, synagogue leaders, Samaritan women, uh, soldiers, kings, magi, children, Gentile. I mean, Jesus comes into contact with every type of person. And every different demographic, every social standing, he comes into contact with all these different people and we get to see how Jesus speaks into those people's lives. It's really interesting. And so here we are looking at another person, another type of person and how Jesus reacts and responds to this person, okay? So we looked at the man. Let's look at the question. What is he asking Jesus? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, I respect this question. Can I just say that? This is a good question. I, I'm fed up, by the way, with our culture that is so against challenging or asking the deeper questions in life. We're in a culture that's like supporting this, just believe whatever you want. No one's gonna challenge you. No one's just gonna, 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 gonna ask you if that even makes sense, especially in my age group. I have friends that are atheists, that are Scientologists, that are Unitarians, and they haven't put a zero, they put zero amount of thinking into it. No one challenges them on whether that makes sense even to be an atheist that even logically plays out to be a Unitarian, to say that all truths lead to the same place. Logically, that doesn't make any sense, right? But nobody challenges them. Here's the guy that at least he's willing to come up to Jesus, to this rabbi, and say, hey, what do I got to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do? This is a big question. This is a question that people should be asking, right? I'm glad that he asks this question. Now, the way that this man approaches Jesus reveals two assumptions that he has. Tim Keller gives these two assumptions that are really helpful. I wanted to go, this, go over this. He reveals two assumptions that this man has about Christianity in, in his question. The first thing is he reveals that this man thinks Christianity is something you can add to your life. He thinks it's something that you can add. He's got this long list of things that he's done. Money, power, fluence, knowledge, education, all these things. Piety, morality, religious standing, all of these things, and he comes to Jesus and he says, hey man, I'm doing pretty good, but I, I think I'm missing something. There's one thing that's not quite here yet, so what is it? <laughs> I want to add it to my list. It's, it's like for, for when I do music for Sunday mornings, when I'm preparing for that throughout the week, and I'm thinking through, okay, what does this song need? Uh, it sounds pretty good, the song's sounding good, but maybe it needs a little more percussion. Maybe it needs a little bit more of a high-frequency instrument. Maybe it, needs, uh, maybe it needs an intro. Maybe it needs a, another bar here. Song's good, but I'm going to add a little bit to it. Yeah, the recipe's pretty good. We're making some cake. It's good, but maybe if we added chocolate chips on top, it'd be better. Take it to the next level, right? This is what this guy's thinking. He's thinking, yeah, I'm pretty good. I got it together, but I feel like I'm missing one ingredient, maybe. So Jesus, what is that thing? He thinks it's something that he can add to his life. He's looking to round out his life just to kind of make it a little better. Now, how many of you guys know that Christianity is not something you add to your life? It's something that completely changes your life for the better. Something that completely course corrects. It's not like this, it's like this, right? 180 degree turn. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you gotta be reborn. He didn't just say, yeah, man, you know, you're just missing a couple laws. If you just focus on those a little bit more, then you'd be good. No, he says, you've got to be reborn. Well, how, does a, how, do you, how do you enter into your mother's womb again? Of course, Jesus is talking spiritually there that, that God can use nothing. He wants to completely give you a new heart. 
Complete 180 turn. This guy's approaching Jesus thinking, let me just add something. There's something I need to add to my life here. The second assumption that he has is that Christianity is something you can do, right? In, in Matthew's account, he says it more specifically. This, this rich young ruler says, what good deed must I do to inherit? What, what do I got to do? Just tell me and I'll do it. That's religion in the negative sense of the word at the core, right? Do this, do that. Whatever I have to do to inherit life, just tell me what it is. Watchman Nee said that Christianity doesn't start with a do, it starts with a done, right? It doesn't start with what I do. It doesn't start with me initiating something. It starts with God having done it before the foundations of the earth. Going to the cross before you were even born, while you were still a sinner, he chose you, he paid for your sin, he accomplished salvation for you, right? For you. It starts with done. It doesn't start with a do. We looked at the man. We looked at the question. Let's look at the answer. That's where it gets good here. The answer. <laughs> Jesus answers his question, what must I do to inherit, you know, eternal life? What, what, what do I need to add to my, my life here? He answers his question in multiple parts, three specifically. First thing Jesus says in verse 18, it says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What? <laughs> That's kind of weird. Why is Jesus saying no one is good but God? I mean, is, that, is he saying that he's sinful? Is he saying that he's fallen? Well, we know theologically that's not right. We know theologically from the doctrine of the Trinity that Jesus is the third person of the Trinity, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is perfect. So why is Jesus saying something like that? A few reasons. First of all, remember that Christ's goal in his ministry is to model what we should be doing. You understand that? Jesus didn't come to model what it looks like to be God. He came to model what it looks like to walk in faith and purity and perfection for us because he's our high priest. So everything that Jesus did was an example for us. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm just a servant. And that's the beautiful thing about the Trinity. Jesus is focusing on the glory of, the God, of God, right? God the Father is focusing on the glory of the Son. Jesus isn't concerned at this moment with his glory. Secondly, he says, why do you call me good? Secondly, Jesus at this time, he's still veiling his messianic identity. You understand that? He's not fully letting out yet who he is. That's not the point yet. And lastly, Jesus' goal with this man is to remove any self-righteousness that he might have. Notice he says, no man is good. Well, who thinks that he's good right now? This guy does. And Jesus just drops a bomb. No man is good but God, Right? So the first part of the answer to this man's question is Jesus saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The second part is interesting, even more so. In verse 19, he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus brings up the law. Interesting, right? In the, in the, in the, in the answer to this question, Jesus brings up the law. Why does he do that? Galatians 3.23. If you guys got your Bibles, flip over there real quick. It'll be worth it. I mean, why is Jesus bringing up the law? Isn't that old covenant theology? Why is Jesus, the new covenant himself, bringing up old covenant theology? This was a really cool verse when I found this. It's always kind of just intrigued me, and I think it fits well here. Galatians 3.23. Here's what Paul says. He says, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What, what's Paul saying there? Well, the King James is actually, believe it or not, is actually helpful here. Um, the King James is very helpful in this. Uh, that sounded like a slam on King James. It wasn't. I read King James. Um, the King James actually says this, quote, schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It says that the law was our schoolmaster. That's helpful for me. I think of like a boarding school. You're sent away and you're under the schoolmaster and his job is to raise you up to be an adult, to raise you up for adult life. It says that the law was your schoolmaster to what? To bring you unto Christ, that you might be justified, not by works, but by faith. So the law is directional. The law, the point of the law was to focus, to point to Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus bringing up the law to this guy? Why isn't he bringing up grace? Why isn't he bringing up the new covenant? He's bringing up the law because the law is pointing to Christ. Because the law was this guy's schoolmaster that brought him to a point where now he can receive Christ. The law was never meant to be our savior. The law was meant to bring us to the savior, right? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, the law was your schoolmaster that got you here, but the law is for nothing if it doesn't lead to me, right? If the law doesn't get you to me, then you're missing it. Which leads us to the third part of the answer which is him. Listen to this. Verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Okay, so there we see that, that moral sort of arrogance a little bit there. Yeah, I've kept the law. I'm on it. Check the law. Got it. Verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. This guy's like, sweet, one thing. That's perfect because I I have everything else and all I'm looking for is one little thing that I can do. Because, like, I mean, I got this crazy resume of how, what an awesome, like, Jewish guy I am. I'm, I'm, I'm awesome. I'm good-looking. I'm young. I'm, I'm strong. I have money. Uh, I'm a ruler. I'm fluent. I, I, I know all, the, all these cool things. It's just that one thing I need. And Jesus is like, great, one thing. Here's one thing, and, and then you're good. And then Jesus just, like, punches him in the stomach <laughs> verbally. He says, one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Ugh. What? You're supposed to give me the chocolate chips on top of the cake. You're supposed to give me the whipped cream and the cherry on top of the sundae. Just the little extra thing to show that I'm the bomb. And you're telling me I gotta sell everything that makes me the bomb? <laughs> For those of you older guys, the bomb is like <laughs> someone that's cool. It's not like a bad thing. Which is actually funny because I think the bomb was like from the 90s, wasn't it? <laughs> but I was talking to Randy the other day and we were talking about like rap music and how stupid, like secular rap music. And I was like, yeah, I can't believe people listen to stuff like 50 Cent. And I was like, 50 Cent? I was like in the 90s or it's the early 2000s. You're like, you're so old now. I'm like, what? I'm like Eminem, Baja Men? Come on. It's just weird. Anyways. That was a big distraction. Jesus drops this bomb on him, right? Okay, here's the one thing you need to do. You need to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then let's go. Come follow me. 
Interesting. This is not, can I say this again? This is not the easy believism that many people would think it is to be a disciple. This is not the call that most people would preach from the pulpit to the non-believer and say, hey, just come pray the prayer and everything's roses. This is not the realistic call. This is the realistic call of discipleship that Jesus actually has, not the one that we're seeing out there a lot, right? Now, this is supposed to be, the, this is confusing, right? Isn't this the part where Jesus says, you know, hey, just come pray the prayer, throw your pine cone in the fire, and everything's going to be good. But he doesn't say that. That's what you would expect him to say. Come on, Jesus, this is new covenant. What do you mean I've got to sell everything I have? That sounds like works. That sounds like the law. Key words. You guys got a pen? I don't, I don't even care if you don't like underlining. Just underline these two words. I promise it'll be okay. In verse 21, Jesus looking at him, underline, loved him. Jesus looked at him. He didn't assess him with data. He didn't assess him and say, legally, I think you need to, it wasn't like a lawyer pulling open his book and saying, yeah, according to section 2B, you have to go sell everything you have to get into heaven. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not saying, according to the law, here's what you have to do. Jesus looks at him and loves him says, I love you. I care about you more than anyone in the entire world. I know more than anyone in the entire world what you need, what's wrong with you, what the cancer is that's eating you alive, what the thing is that's keeping you from eternal joy. I know what that thing is. And what it is, is that you need to sell everything you have and you need to follow me. It's not some legal yoke of bondage that Jesus is placing on him. It's Jesus lovingly assessing what's wrong with this guy. What's wrong with him is that he's worshiping the wrong thing. So what's the issue? (laughs) Number four, what's the issue? The issue is idolatry. It's idolatry. We're going to talk about that a little bit because it's a big deal. And this is what's keeping this man from getting the greatest treasure in his entire life, Jesus Christ himself. It's idolatry. Listen to verse 22. Disheartened by the saying. This is the man's reaction to Jesus' answer. He's disheartened. He's bummed at what Jesus just told him he has to do. He's disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why did he go away sorrowful? Because he didn't want to get rid of his stuff. His stuff meant a lot to him. His Power meant a lot to him. His money meant a lot to him. Jesus says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Disciples are floored. (laughs) Wow, Jesus just say that? By the way, Jesus never says that to anyone else. Never says, hey, sell everything that you have. He doesn't. This is a very specific very specific doctor's note from Christ to this man. Dude, you got cancer. You need to deal with it drastically. We need to put you on chemo tonight, right? We got to deal with this thing. Not everybody has the same issue that you have. The funny thing is no one would have guessed this guy had this issue. There's three, okay, well, first of all, what, what is idolatry? Idolatry is anything that holds, now listen, idolatry is anything that holds more value to you than Jesus, Idolatry is anything that holds more value, that's more valuable to you than Jesus himself. It's all about value, okay? Let me explain that really quick. We all have this internal value system. If you, if you guys, if I could like 
click a button and you guys all turn into little pie charts, which would be awesome, with little number, like percentage numbers above your head. Um, and, and all the little pie, I'm actually picturing it, this is awesome. Every little pie chart would say the amount of value that you place on different aspects of your life. Some of you would have a giant thing that said family. Some of you would have a giant thing that would say money. Some of you would have a giant part of your, your pie chart that would say um, my kids. Some of you would say health. Some of you would say food. Some of you would say, and that would be mine for sure. Some of you would have all these different amounts of value that, that would be placed in your life. I'll give you some examples. Um, you drive by a house like mine where the yard is completely brown. The value that I place on my yard is very low. The value, the value that I play on coming, coming home and relaxing on my weekend is very high, okay? I enjoy relaxing and hanging out with my wife on my weekend. I don't want to go mow the lawn and water it. That's not valuable to me. Um, the guy that's got six-pack abs and he's ripped, his value system is more on that than it is on eating McDonald's cheeseburgers, right? The guy that's eating McDonald's, I don't, dude, I place zero value in having abs. All my value is in eating cheeseburgers. That's what's important to me. And, and you sacrifice, right? You sacrifice to what's more valuable to you, right? Give you another example. My wife and I, we've been doing this, we've been doing our budget lately and sitting down and looking at our annual budget. And the reality, you guys know, if you, you guys all have budgets, you all have limited funds, we all have limited funds, and you look at your budget and then you look at your lifestyle <laughs> and you realize this does not fit in here. Like it just doesn't. I want to go on vacations. I want to buy a new guitar. Um, I want to live in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. I want to have nice things, all that stuff we want. It doesn't fit into your budget. So what you have to do is you have to decide what's most valuable to you, okay? And my wife and I are having to do that. Well, what's more important, buying a house right now or being able to enjoy the lifestyle that we enjoy, being able to, to give money to people, being able to have people over for dinner, being able to take a vacation once a year and get out of Medford once in a while. What's important? What's more important, buying a house or doing these things? And we have to decide what's most valuable. My wife and I, make, we make a decision in our life where my wife stays home and she's a stay-at-home mom. It's just something that we feel convicted to do. Um, and that's a value system. To me, it's more valuable for my wife to be at home raising my daughter and taking care of my home than it is for the extra 20000 a year that she could be making working and maybe be have a little nicer car and a little nicer house. I'd rather lose the nicer car and nicer house and have my wife at home. It's all value, value systems, okay? Now, idolatry is when your value system is completely out of whack, right? Where your value system says, Jesus is very small in my pie chart and very large is insert whatever your idol is, okay? This guy has three idols that I can see, at least, okay? The first one is money. The first one is money. It says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He had a lot of money. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Whoa, this idol is really hard to shake. This idol is really hard to get into heaven with. Money, it's a big deal. Jesus talks about it a lot. Actually, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Now, now, now let, me, let me fix something. Money isn't the root of all evil. You know that? Love of money is the root of all evil. Money, that's just paper that's touched millions of hands and has lots of germs. That's just paper, right? And in our country, it doesn't even count for root. It's probably just paper. Money is not the issue. Money is not the evil. What the evil is is the love of money. Okay, the love of money. Well, what is money? 
Money is what we worship our gods with. Now, I remember one time when I was working in retail, and I, and I, was, I was talking to my district manager, who was just the man. He was a really cool guy, but he's not a Christian. Um, but I looked up to him. He was a really good business guy, really good dad, all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, man, I just really want to tell this guy about Jesus. So um, he's asking me about my future with the company, and do you think you want to go forward with managing, and do you want to move for the company, all stuff. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, like, drop this little Christian thing in there. I'm like, yeah, but I just really don't care that much about money, you know? And he's all, yeah, but you care about your lifestyle, like, this guy just shut me down, right? I, I'm here, I'm thinking I'm being, like, Christian, like, super Christian-y by saying I don't care about money. But he's right. It's not about money. Money represents something. All of us would be lying if we said we didn't want to live in a nice house. It doesn't have mold and ants and spiders. All of us would be lying if we said we wanted to, didn't want to live in a nice neighborhood or drive a car that doesn't break down all the time. We'd be lying if we said we wanted to eat good food and be able to go up to eat in restaurants once in a while, right? That's what money represents. That's what money represents, the things that it buys, it's not that this guy is worshiping money. I mean, maybe he is. Maybe he's got, little, some guys are like that. They just keep it all in the bank and they worship that. But it's what money buys. Money is the means by which we create our gods. If your god is buying the newest video game every time it comes out, you will worship that god with your money. If your god is having the coolest car, the best house, so people think that you're rich, you will worship that god with your money. The, means is, the money is the means by which you worship your god of choice. Does that make sense? So this guy is, has a lot of money and therefore he has a lot of things that he's worshiping outside of God. We see this in the Old Testament, right? They, they, they get freed, the Israelites get freed from Exodus and what happens? They take all their money, all their gold and their jewelry and while Moses is up on the hill hanging out with God, they melt it down together and make a golden calf and worship it. So the money is what constructed the God that they worshiped with, right? It's just, it's old, People have been doing it forever. The second idol that this guy has is his social status. The second thing that's keeping him from saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going to get rid of all this stuff and follow you, is his social status. People care about their image, okay? People care about it. I, I don't care if you tell me you don't care. My dad, for instance, he's one of those guys that, like, he doesn't care what he wears, but there's things he won't wear, right? Like, my dad's like, oh, just give me whatever, you know, I'll just get a shirt from Walmart, extra large pocket, whatever, okay. And he just wears very basic clothes, and that's great. But if I gave my dad a deep V-neck, he's not going to wear that, right? Because that's not his image. I used to work in retail, and people are so funny. You got one guy comes in, dude, I need, like, tight pants. I want them really tight, and I want holes and distressed, um, because that guy's going for an image. He wants to look like somebody, right? And then you got the other guy who says, I don't want anything that's frilly or anything with big stitching. I just want regular pants. And that guy could say, I don't care about my image, but the reality is that guy does care about his image. His image is not caring about his image, right? Where I grew up in Wairika, um, what do I call it? There's people that are just, they're poor and they don't care and they do a lot of drugs um, and they're white. Uh, I don't, you can come up with what that's called. I'm not going to say it. So this is where I grew up and that's where I'm from. And people down there say, oh, we don't care about looking rich. We don't care about looking like anything. But their image is looking like they're that. Their image is, yeah, I'm from a trailer park and I cage fight and I'll punch you if you look at me funny. That's my image. And I'm gonna hold that image. And they say, I don't care about image, but that's their image, looking poor. Some people, their image is looking rich. Some people, their image is saying, I don't care about image. I'm just who I am. That's your image. The person with dreadlocks that's on the corner saying, yeah, no one tells me who I am. That's your image. You're trying to look like someone that doesn't care. 
So we all do it. We all have an image and we all care about our image. It's just a reality. We do. And I've literally firsthand seen someone refuse to follow Jesus because of an image and it broke my heart. I used to work in a juvenile hall ministry and there was this kid in there, this big Latino kid. He was hard. He was a hard kid. Fight all the time meth since he was a little kid, all kinds of crazy stuff. And he broke down on a Sunday morning in juvenile hall in his Velcro shoes and sweats. He came up and he cried on my shoulder. I prayed for him. He wanted Jesus. A week later, he gets out. I'm just a 19-year-old youth pastor who everybody knows is the youth pastor. And I'm driving down the street and I say, hey, what's up, Jose? And he looks, he's with his homies. He's got his street gear on and he looks at me and just completely blows me off. He cared more about his image than he did about greeting the guy that just led him to Jesus. You say, yeah, well, that's just a kid. We all care about our image. This guy, when Jesus says, hey, sell everything that you have and follow me, he's not just saying, hey, give it rid of all your stuff. He's saying, give up your image. Give up everything that people think that you're special because of. Everyone that thinks that you're awesome because of your money, because of your power, because of your gifts, of your abilities. Give up all that and come be, come, come be homeless with me. Come be someone that people are looking down on. God's not willing to do it. He worships his image. Lastly, he worships his self-righteousness. This is close to home. Can I say this? An idol that slips through the cracks because it looks so much like Christianity. Oh, that's not idolatry. That guy's just really excited about the Lord. Right? That's not, yeah, that that guy's a good guy. I mean, he gives to charities. Why do people give to charities this might make somebody mad, but why, why, do, why do people give the charities that, that don't want anything to do with Jesus and, and are really ultimately selfish and living Hollywood selfish lives? Why do they give to charities? Well, maybe they're good people. Maybe. Maybe they're worshiping the God of, I feel good about myself right now. Maybe they're worshiping the God. When they write that check and dump ice water on their head, <laughs> um, sorry, <laughs> we did that too. I, um, maybe when they write that check and dump ice water on their head, they're actually writing a check with their means of worship to the God of now I can feel like I'm a good person because I just gave to a charity. Even though I've, had, I've got a new wife every three months like people do in Hollywood, even though I, I've done insanely horrible things in movies and, and led kids in, in horrible places with my music videos, hey dude, I give to charity, so I feel pretty good about myself. Okay, well that's not hitting close to home. We do it too. We do it too. We worship the God of I feel good about myself right now and we do it by tithing. We do it by serving. We do it by coming to church. We do it by saying Christian-y things, by carrying our Bible around. Not saying those things are always bad, but we do those things sometimes not because we love Jesus, not because we're really filled with the Spirit, but we do them because we are worshiping the God of self-righteousness. Right now I feel good about myself because I just went to church and I just wrote a check and I just read my Bible and now I've worshipped my God of self-righteousness he's given me what I want I feel good about myself and then I'm going to have to do it again later is that why we give? is that why we read our Bible? is that why we go to church? to feel good about ourselves? no we do it because we love him we do it because we want him we want to know more about him this is an idol that's slippery but it's an idol that's prominent how do you know if you're worshipping this idol? Here's a little test. When you think about your salvation, when you think, how do I know that I'm saved? Does your mind go here, okay? Does your mind go to questions like this? Does it go to, well, how have I been doing lately? Pretty good. 
yeah, I've been, you know, I haven't sinned in a little while and nothing too crazy, you know? Does it go to um, how you're perceived publicly? I mean, that's easy for me. I'm a pastor. I mean, obviously, I'm a Christian, right? <laughs> I'm a pastor. Does it go to what you've done in the past for God? Yeah, I've done crazy things, man. Before, I used to do all kinds of ministries, so obviously, and fall on the Lord. Does it go to someone in your mind that you know that's better, that you're better than them? Does it go to someone in your mind that you know that you're more religious than them? Does it go to how much Bible you know? Does it go to the fact that you give money to charity? Does it go to the fact that, um, you know, past experiences you've had with God and things like that? Or does it go to the fact that my God is gracious and he loves me? That's how I know I'm saved. That's how I know I'm saved. How do you know that, that you're worshiping to the God of self-righteousness? You know by looking at what, what makes you realize that God loves you. How do I know that God loves me? Well, I've been pretty good. You're worshiping self-righteousness. You feel good because you do good. You think you're good because you think you're doing good things. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God has come in because of nothing that you've done. When you were filthy in sin, when you, when you were at war with him and he saved you from that, that's the gospel. That's how you know you're saved, because of the grace of God, not because of anything that you've done, not because of anything that you deserve. Here's what's funny, verse 28. Peter loves this. <laughs> this is funny. Peter, have you guys ever been in a sermon and the guy's up there talking and he, and he says something like, uh, fasting. He's preaching about fasting and he says, we should be fasting and you just happen to be fasting that week? And you're like, yeah, that's right. We should be fasting and I'm doing it so I can amen to that. And then there's a guy next to you that hasn't been fasting and he's like, oh man, I should be fasting, right? And we love it when the pastor preaches sermons on things that we're doing. And this is what Peter thinks. Jesus is like, you got to sell everything you have and follow me. And Peter's all, I just did that. I left up my nets. I left my nets in my boats and I'm following Christ. Woo, I'm on. I'm, I got it. Was Jesus being called from his nets, was that his moment that I talked about in the beginning? Was that his moment of realization? No. That wasn't it. Where was Peter's moment that was equivalent to this guy's moment when he denied Christ three times? He failed. He failed, straight out failed. The leader of the Christian church, Peter, failed three times. He's sitting over here thinking, and here's how we know this. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Hey, Jesus, we did that, right? We're awesome, man. We totally did that. We stuck it. So what do we get? Jesus is gracious. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And then Jesus tags us on the end. He says, But many who are first will be last and last will be first. Yeah, Peter, you're first right now, dude. You think that you did good right now? But in a few months, you're going to flat out deny me three times. Flat out fail. When the severity of what it is to actually follow me, when the cost of discipleship is actually counted, you're going to fail. Here's the good news, and we're going to close here. The good news, okay, God's grace transcends. God's grace transcends our failures. Do you get that? Listen to this. They were exceedingly astonished, verse 26 in our text, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, 
mean, they're blown away at this. They, they say, if, Jesus, if this guy can't get into the kingdom of heaven because, I mean, this guy's the man. If he can't get into the kingdom of heaven, who can get into the kingdom of heaven? If this guy can't do it, who can? He says, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I hope that I left you guys at a place where you just say, if Peter can't do it, and if this guy can't do it, how can I do it? You can't. You can't. It's not about what you do. Don't make the mistake this guy makes in coming to Jesus saying, what do I do, Lord? What do I add to your kingdom, Lord? What do I, what do, I do to prove myself worthy? What do I do? What do I do? It's not about that. It's what did he do for you? It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's about his grace. It's not about your works. It's not about your religious piety. It's not about your self-righteousness. It's about his grace that transcends our idolatry, that transcends our failures, that transcends our sinful nature. And we will praise the glory of his grace forever. Just lastly, I said I was going to come back to that text and I'm going to. Verse 13 through 16 Jumping back to before our story. They were bringing children to him. Here's the contrast, really quickly. Okay, contrast. Here's this guy, has it all together. And now here's some kids, just some kids coming up to Jesus, okay? They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The disciples rebuked them. Why did the disciples rebuke them? Because in this time, in this, in this, I mean, we live in a culture where kids are, I mean, we worship our kids sometimes, right? I mean, kids are our idols a lot of times, you know? Um, that was not the same thing necessarily in, in Israel at this time. Kids were something that were, were, were uh, important if it meant carrying on your name or if you had a son, that was great. But, but ultimately, I mean, kids were just not important. So the fact that these kids are running up to, to talk to Jesus, the disciples are like, what are you doing? He doesn't have time for you. He's got more important things to do. They rebuke them for bringing these kids up to them. Ultimately, the only thing that made a kid of any value to anyone was depending on whose dad he was. Oh, yeah, my dad's, you know, a Pharisee. Well, that's great. You're important. So these kids run up to him. The disciples try to rebuke him, and Jesus says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So does the kingdom of God belong to the guy that had it all together? Who does the kingdom of God belong to? To such as these, these kids. These little kids. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus has just given us the key. It's not this guy, the guy that had it all together. It's not, about, it's not his, his way. Let's, let's not learn anything from him. Let's learn from these kids. Three quick things. I'm going to be so quick. Three quick things about this. Why, why, why kids? Number one, Children have no social status. They're just kids, right? They have nothing, they, they have nothing about them. They're just, they're just kids. They can't, they're not like this guy where they have a life worth of things that have, that have proved themselves. They're just kids. They don't even have time to prove themselves. My daughter didn't have to do anything to prove that she loved me. My daughter didn't have to prove anything for me to love her. She's just my daughter. That's the relationship God wants with us. God says, I don't want 80 years of you proving to me by the law that you're worthy of heaven. I want you to be like a kid who hasn't done anything to prove that he's worthy. Secondly, a child has simple and honest faith. They just believe, right? They just believe. My daughter doesn't know anything about me. but She likes me. She smiles when I come through the door. It's great. She just believes. She just knows I'm her dad. 
This man did not believe. Jesus was not the greatest treasure for him. And lastly, and most importantly, listen to this, a child cannot contribute anything. Guys, my daughter, don't tell her I said this, she's nine months old, she doesn't do anything around the house, man. I mean, she just poops in her diaper, and I feed her, and she gets it everywhere, and she cries in the middle of the night, and she doesn't do anything, she doesn't contribute anything to our home. <laughs> I'm kidding, obviously. This is, this is what salvation is. This is what God wants us to come to him as. Little kids that contribute absolutely nothing to the work of our salvation. Because guess what? It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his grace. His grace transcends our sin. We're like a little kid that can't contribute anything, but yet I love that little girl, and God loves me. And he has died for me outside of everything that I've done. So, kind of a crazy story, right? I mean, go sell everything you have. But was, 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 this, was Jesus asking this guy to give up anything? No. He was actually asking him to trade it in for something greater. And that was Jesus. May we always think of Christ as the ultimate joy. May we always think of him as greater than everything in our life, our career, our family, our, our marriages, our king, our, the kingdom that we've made of our own, our houses, our cars, our stuff. Even our own just religious piety and all that stuff. May Jesus always be greater than those things. Because if he's not, then that's a cancer. And it needs to be removed, right? Would you guys stand with me real quick? Sorry I went so long. Let's just pray. God, tonight I'm thankful that you look at us tonight with love in your eyes. God, that you don't look at us uh, with, um, with a rule book trying to figure out whether we measure up, Lord, but you look at us uh, simply with love in your eyes, Lord, that, that you did it all for us, God, because we couldn't do it for ourselves. I'm thankful tonight that I can stand assured of the salvation that you've given me, not because of anything I've done, but because you are gracious and you are good and I know you. So Lord, would you go with us tonight? Lord, would you help us to be challenged by this, Father? Would you help us to be good with our finances? Lord, would you help us to put value in the right place in our lives? Lord, to not have things out of whack. Help us to see when we're in idolatry. Help us to deal with that, God. Would you deal with it for us even, Lord, where we can't? Help Heritage, God, as a church, to be a church that's about genuine and true and real gospel living, God, that, that it's all about your grace and not about what we do or accomplish, God. I thank you that you've called us to this crazy calling. I thank you that someday we'll have an opportunity, Lord, to have the hardest moment of our life and that you will give us the strength to get through that, Lord. God, we just love you tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good night.